Welcome to the teaching ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Santa Maria, California. Join our pastors as they share biblical principles of God's transforming grace so that you may learn God's word in order to live God's way. Hey, good morning, Grace. Uh, Grab your Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 1. A few things to mention uh, before we dig into the text. Um, In the last service, uh, at some point in the message early on, I think I said that I was going to say gospel a lot, and my clever 12-year-old son, Zechariah, decided to count how many times I said gospel. I don't know how many times I said it before I said I was going to say it a lot, because I think there were several, but he said after I said that, I said it 83 times. So we're going to have a little gospel extravaganza here today. Philippians chapter 1 is where we're going to be. Just a heads up on where we're heading. Next week, Pastor Greg is going to be preaching in the morning services, talking about communion, the Lord's Supper, and the importance of that. I'll be uh, teaching in the PM service, a short devotional, because we have uh, baptisms and baby dedications. Then after that, for the next four weeks after that, we're going to start our Christmas series, which I've titled The Christmas Drama. Because sometimes at Christmas, there's a little drama in our lives, and we're going to go back and look at the drama, the story of the very first Christmas in Luke chapter 1 and chapter 2. That's where we're headed. Let's pray, and and we'll begin. Father, thank you so much for the hope of the gospel, that you loved us so much that you sent your Son into this world to do what we could never do, to live a perfect life, to die in our place. Thank you for raising him from the dead. Thank you for the hope of the gospel that we too one day will rise again and be with you forever upon the new earth where it will be an eternity of joy. Thank you for your spirit. We are so dependent upon your spirit now to open our eyes to see wonderful things out of your word, to to give us ears to hear what you would say to us. So would you help us now in Jesus' name? Amen. Last week, we saw that we are to magnify Jesus Christ with our lives and with our death. Uh, We saw that you magnify Jesus Christ with your life when you die to yourself in order to maximize joy in others. We also saw that you magnify Jesus Christ with your death when you can leave everything in this life in order to maximize your joy for eternity with Jesus forever. So what Paul's going to do in the next two sections of Philippians, what we look at today and what we'll look at when we start back in January, is in verse 27 to 30, we'll see that the gospel shapes how we live together in community. And then verses 1 through 11 of chapter 2, which we'll eventually get to, Paul's going to show us how we die to self in community. So today is living together in community, and in a month and several weeks, we're going to look at how we die to self in community. One of the greatest tragedies in churches is that many disciples live out of relation to the wonderful truths of the gospel. So many people's lives don't match up with the beauties contained in the gospel. So many disciples, their lives aren't synced up with the truth and the wonder of the gospel message. Today we're going to learn how to sync our lives up with the gospel. We do that by having faith in Jesus Christ and what he has done for us, and then we live out of that truth. It's faith in the gospel, and then we live out of the wonderful truths of the gospel. So here's our big idea today. You sync your life up with the gospel when you preach the gospel to yourself and to others. 
You sync your life up with the gospel message when you preach that message to yourself and to other people. The you here is plural. You, Grace Baptist, and you, Church Universal. You sync your life up with the gospel message when you preach that message to yourself and to other people. Maybe you've never thought about the idea of preaching the gospel to yourself Most Christians think that the gospel is only for unbelievers, but the truth of the matter is that the gospel is for believers too. We don't simply believe the gospel at conversion and then never hear of it again. At conversion, we hear and we believe the gospel, and after that, we just go further and deeper into it. The gospel is like an ocean. The waters are deep. The glories of the gospel are as big and wide and vast as the ocean. So we need to learn to preach the truths of the gospel to ourselves and to others. I first heard the phrase, preach the gospel to yourself from Jerry Bridges. I like to figure out where people get quotes and I traced it beyond him. And he heard it from a Presbyterian pastor by the name of Jack Miller. Struck a chord with me about, I think it was about six years ago when this landed on me, began to transform and change my life. In his book, The Discipline of Grace, which I highly recommend to you, Jerry Bridges says this, preach the gospel to yourself. To preach the gospel to yourself then means that you continually face up to your own sinfulness and then you flee to Jesus through faith in his shed blood and righteous life. It means that you appropriate Again, by faith, the fact that Jesus fully satisfied the law of God, that he is your propitiation, and that God's holy wrath is no longer directed towards you. To preach the gospel to yourself means that you take at face value the precious words of Romans 4, verses 7 and 8. Blessed or happy are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed or happy is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. It means that you believe on the testimony of God that therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. That's what it means to preach the gospel to yourselves. You live by faith in the gospel, believing all that God is for us in his son Jesus, and then we live out of the gospel, out of that glorious truth. That's what Paul is encouraging the Philippians here to do. He wants them to sync their lives up with the gospel message, faith in that message, and then they live out of that message. Look at verse 27. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. If you've been with us through this series of Philippians, we've seen so far in this letter that Paul is gospel-saturated, that he is gospel-centered, that he is gospel-intoxicated. It is gospel, gospel, gospel for Paul. He's all about the gospel, and so am I. And that's why I'm going to say gospel at least 83 times, maybe more. This is what I mean when I say gospel and preaching the gospel to yourselves is this, that Christ died to bring us to God to forgive us of our sins, to transform us and bring us into an eternal, joyous relationship with the triune God as our treasure in this life and in the next. That's what I mean when I say gospel. 
And Paul has experienced the power, the transforming power of that message, and he desires the Philippians to continue to tap into that, to live the gospel out in their day-to-day lives. He wants them to live out of the truths of the gospel. And that's why he says in verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Paul's saying there's one thing that matters in life is that you live a gospel-centered life, that you live out of the gospel every moment of your life. The phrase here, let your manner of life be worthy, a couple of things about the Greek text here. It's a present tense imperative. Paul's saying, I want you to continually, I want you to be habitually living out of the truth of the gospel. The word here was used for citizenship, Um, You could translate it, and you maybe see a footnote in your Bible as live as citizens or behave as citizens worthy. It's a very significant word for Paul to use in writing to the Philippians because the Philippians knew this word. Philippi was a Roman colony. They prided themselves in being Roman. Everything about their culture revolved around Rome. Their fashion, the, the language, the culture. If Rome had it, Philippi wanted to copy it. And they were so proud at being Roman citizens. And they knew this word. And so when Paul says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, he meant live as gospel citizens right where you are in Philippi. Live like people who have been and want to be shaped by the gospel. Live gospel-saturated lives, he's saying. Live gospel-centered lives. Live gospel-synced lives. He wants them to live out of the gospel all the time. And that's why he says in verse 27, whether I come and see you or whether I hear about you, I want to hear that you're living a gospel-centered or a gospel-synced life. But What does it look like to live as a gospel citizen? What does it look like to live a gospel-synced life? Verses 27 and 28 will show us here. There's three things. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ So that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. So to live as a gospel citizen, to live as a gospel-synced person and church, it entails three things. Standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not being frightened in anything by our, all, any of our opponents. That's what it means to live out of the gospel, to be so in sync with the gospel that we begin to live out of it. Paul says he wants them here, he says here to stand firm in one spirit. He means unity. He says he wants them to be unified with one mind. Again, one spirit, one mind. I want you to think a certain way. I want you to think gospel-centered thoughts. I want you to be talking about the gospel, to stand there united together. And then he says, striving side by side. This was an athletic term in Paul's day. It was used of athletes, of the the gladiators that would be in the arena. Literally, it's athleticized together. We get our word athlete from it. It's athleo. He says, I want you to athleticize together like, and stand and fight like the, the show American Gladiators. You remember that show that was on? I think they, they resurrected it a few years ago. My kids love it. There's always this one activity where you've got these people standing on these platforms and you've got to try to knock the gladiator off and you've got the helmet and the pads and the goal is to knock someone off into the water and you win. I think that's kind of the picture Paul has here. He says, I want you to athleticize together, stand firm in one spirit, striving side by side, fighting off anything that is contrary to the gospel. That's what the church is to be. 
Church is to be a place where we stand united together in the gospel message, ready to defend against any false teaching. And the church is to be a place where we preach the gospel to each other, a place where we remind each other of the wonderful truths of the gospel, where we remind each other of everything that God the Father is for us in his son, Jesus Christ. It means when you're at Starbucks talking to someone and they say, I'm so depressed, I don't feel like God loves me, you come back and say, no, that's contrary to the gospel. God loves you. And you preach the gospel to them. And when they say, oh, I've blown it big time. And maybe you meet with someone or maybe you have blown it big time and you sinned and there are major consequences in your life. It doesn't matter because you're still blameless in God's sight. It does matter. The consequences are there, but you're blameless in God's eyes. No matter how much we sin, no matter how devastating our sin is, we're still blameless in God's eyes. If we've repented and trusted in Jesus Christ, if we're a Christian, if we're a disciple, And so when you meet with one another, we're to be a a church that we encourage each other, we preach the gospel to each other. The phrase here, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, could mean three things in Greek. You can read commentaries if you want to about it. Uh, I'm about to tell you the way I take it. It could mean the faith that is the gospel. They're striving side by side for the faith that is the gospel message. Or it could mean the faith that originates from the gospel. So Paul's saying, strive for the faith that comes from the gospel message. Or it could be the third option, which is what I take it as, is faith in the gospel. I think it's an objective genitive here in the Greek. I know it just went over most of your heads, but it's, it's the object is the gospel and our faith is in the gospel. So I think Paul is saying, strive side by side for faith in the gospel. As we live as gospel citizens, we stand side by side together for faith in that message. So I think Paul is telling the Philippians this. You sync your life up with the gospel when you preach the gospel to yourself and to others. Paul wants the Philippians to believe by faith all that God is for us in Jesus. He wants them to truly believe the gospel message. But didn't they believe the gospel message, you may ask? I mean, they're, they're Christians, aren't they? Didn't they believe it? Yes, they did. But Paul wants them to continue to believe in the gospel. Why? Because there were opponents. There were false teachers that were creeping into the church with another message, with another gospel that wasn't the real gospel. And that's why Paul says, don't be frightened by anything by your opponents. Who are the opponents? I used to believe that they were like pagan Philippian citizens who didn't like Christians and would persecute them. And it dawned on me several weeks ago, just kind of meditating over the passage, thinking about it. These are the people that he talks about in chapter 3. The opponents in chapter 1 are the opponents that he talks about in chapter 3. So look at chapter 3, verses 1 to 2, and notice how Paul is saying, by the time he gets to chapter 3, that it's not a trouble for him to write to, to the Philippians again about their opponents. He says... Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 to 2. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. The opponents here in chapter 3, I believe, are the opponents in chapter 1. 
It was a group that scholars have called the Judaizers. The Judaizers were a group of Jewish religious people who were invading the churches. So they heard these Gentiles returning to Jesus Christ as the Messiah, and they came into the church and said, listen, it's not about just trusting in Christ. You have to do things. That's why we have the Old Testament, they would say. So the Judaizers had infiltrated the church at Philippi, And told them that in order to be saved, in order to be a Christian, they had to conform to the Old Testament laws, specifically circumcision. Which is why Paul says, we're the circumcision, circumcision of the heart. But the Judaizers tried to make Gentile Christians come back under the Mosaic law. They would stress the importance of circumcision and closely following all of the ceremonial and dietary laws of the Old Testament. You know the laws that you all go to and read in your devotions and your heart is warmed and stirred? I'm talking about those laws in the Old Testament. But they not only stressed adherence to these laws, they taught that if you weren't circumcised, then you were not united to Christ. For them, circumcision was a prerequisite to salvation and it was needed in order to receive the Holy Spirit. Now, you can only imagine the kind of havoc this was causing the early church, especially the Philippian church. All the Jewish Christians who were circumcised were safe, according to the Judaizers, but any Gentile Christian in Philippi now questioned the validity of his salvation. Perhaps it looked like this practically. A Judaizer hears uh, that there's a small group meeting at Philippian Baptist Church. We'll just call them that, okay? And he goes to the small group, and they begin telling all the Gentile Christians that all the men and the boys need to be circumcised. And they start reading out of Genesis 17 and saying, this is what makes you united to Christ. It was the sign of the covenant in the Old Testament. It's what God told Abraham. So you boys must be circumcised in order to be united to Christ. And all the men in the church did not say amen to that. Okay? But here they are at the small group. And they're barbecuing, and they've got burgers and hot dogs and bratwurst. And the Judaizers come up and start looking at the grill. And they start reading Deuteronomy 14 to the Philippians and saying, you know, we're not supposed to eat certain kinds of meat. And after they leave the men who are grilling, they come up to the women, and they say, don't you know in Deuteronomy 22, 11, it says, you shall not wear cloth of wool and linen mixed together? And the ladies are like, what this one's made of. But I, I, I just got this at Target, 90% off. I've been listening to this rabbi on the radio called David Ramsey, and I've been learning financial principles, and now you're telling me I can't wear this? And they would come into the church and say, listen, you have to come back under the Mosaic law and obey all of those laws in order to be made right with God and united to Christ. The Judaizers were distorting the gospel and leaving a trail of destruction behind them. The Judaizers failed to realize that many of these Old Testament laws, though containing an eternal principle that is good for Christians, they were all fulfilled in Christ. The Judaizers did not believe that it was by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that people are saved. They believe that you had to do something extra. In this case, circumcision. And that's why Paul is telling the Philippians that they must keep believing the gospel. They must strive side by side for faith in the gospel. They must keep believing that it is Jesus' performance for us and not our performance 
for him, that makes us right with him, or keeps us right with him. The Philippians said, you have, I mean, the Judaizers told the Philippians, you have to do something. It's conformed to the Old Testament laws. But they were wrong. Now understand this. This does not mean that there was something wrong with the Old Testament laws. They're good. They reveal God. They show us our sinfulness. But they were never given to make people right with God. When was the law given? At Mount Sinai, who was it given to? A redeemed people who were rescued and redeemed from Egypt. The law was given to a people who were already in relationship with Yahweh, the sovereign Lord. It has always been by grace through faith salvation has. Here's where the Judaizers went wrong. Instead of seeing the Old Testament laws as having been fulfilled in Jesus Christ and yet still containing timeless principles that are good for God's people, the Judaizers said that Christians must keep them back under the law in order to get right with God and maintain their relationship with him. This is not the gospel. The gospel says it's what Jesus did. And he did what you and I could never do. He obeyed the law perfectly. He never sinned. And repentance and trust in him is what makes us right with God. But the Judaizers came in quoting Genesis 17, saying the men must be circumcised. And they quoted Deuteronomy 22, saying you can't wear clothing made of two different fabrics. And they quoted Exodus 23 and Deuteronomy 11, which says that you can't boil a young goat in its mother's milk. I don't know why anybody would want to do that. But if the Philippians got the bright idea one day at their small group, let's boil a young goat in its mother's milk, the Judaizers were there and saying, no, no, it says you can't do that. And it also said, you can't eat bacon, according to Deuteronomy 14. That would not have gone over at the men's breakfast. And this was confusing the Philippian Christians. And that's why Paul says in verse 28, do not be frightened in anything by your opponents. The Greek word here is a word that was used when it, a horse would be startled and get up on its hind legs. It says, don't be startled by what they're saying because they're not preaching the gospel. Don't be caught off guard by this. Paul is saying, sink your life up with the gospel. And you sink your life up with the gospel when you preach the gospel to yourself and to others. By continually believing the gospel message, believing that it is all about Jesus' obedience and not ours, we can then live out of the gospel. Christ living in us and through us because of the power of the gospel message. What does it mean for us, though, to strive side by side as a church body for faith in the gospel? We may not have Judaizers here. I don't know of any Judaizers. But too, far too often we can become like them because of our conscience and our feelings when they begin to condemn us. We let our conscience and our feelings distort the gospel. Practically, I think it looks like this. Let me give you a few examples of how we can become like the Judaizers. Let me tell you this, that you sync your life up with the gospel when you forgive people. Your life is synced up with the gospel when you forgive people. That you can forgive people because God has forgiven you in Christ. Paul says in Ephesians 4.32, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. That's the gospel. God in Christ forgiving us sinners. And Paul is saying because of that message, you need to forgive. 
Colossians 3.13, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Remember, we're going to get to chapter 4. Two ladies are fighting, and Paul actually say, he says in chapter 4, these two ladies have athleticized in the gospel with me. He uses the same word again. He's saying he wants them to forgive one another. And he wants us to forgive one another. Your life is synced up with the gospel when you can look at your spouse and say, I forgive you. When you can go to bed every night and look over at them and say, I forgive you of anything that you've done to me today. When you can look at a coworker or somebody here in this church and say, I forgive you. Because what you've done, trust me, what you've done in the past week pales in comparison to what these people have done to you. Because what you've done in this past week was an offense against a holy God. And yet he forgives you. And he calls you to forgive other people. Your life is synced up with the gospel when you become a forgiving person. When you can say, man, Jesus has forgiven me of so much. How can I not forgive you? You also sync your life up with the gospel when you really believe that you can admit your failures. You are free to admit that you are weak, that you're a sinner, and that you're a failure. We show we believe the gospel when we can admit all of our mistakes and wrongdoings. Listen, we were exposed at the cross 2,000 years ago. It was a gigantic billboard saying to all of us, you're messed up. You've got issues. It's called sin. And the gospel frees us to then go to someone and say, remember the cross? Remember why Jesus died for sinners? I'm a sinner. And I admit, I've sinned against you and I've sinned against God and will you forgive me? The gospel frees us to look at our spouse and say, will you forgive me? And they'll say, yeah, because you're a sinner, I know that. The cross is declaring that about you and about me. Sink your life up with the gospel when you can admit that you're a failure. You sink your life up with the gospel when you really believe in Jesus' righteousness. When you believe and you can rest in the fact that it is that imputed righteousness, that foreign alien righteousness of Jesus Christ that's given to you that makes you right with God and not your good works. It's his good works that make you right with God, not yours. You sink your life up with the gospel when you really believe that you are blameless in God's eyes. Christian, any Christians here? Anyone repented of their sins and they're trusting in Jesus Christ? Listen to me. When God looks at you right now, he smiles at you. He rejoices over you with singing because of Jesus. Because of Jesus, he has totally cleansed you with the blood of his son. You are pure right now in God's eyes. You listening, Christian? You are clean There is no stain, there is no spot, there is no blemish, there is no defilement, there is no defect, there is no disgrace, and there is no guilt because of Jesus right now. You've heard me say it before, I don't care what you did this last week, right now, if you're a Christian, you are blameless in God's eyes, and because of Jesus, when God looks at you, he smiles and he rejoices because he sees his son. That's the gospel. You sink your life up with the gospel when you believe that. You sink your life up with the gospel when you really believe that God loves you. Anybody ever feel like God doesn't love them? Am I the only one? They ever feel like God can't love me today? Maybe yesterday when I was preaching, but today, oh, there's no way. Anybody ever feel that way? 
Walter Marshall, a Puritan, says this, You cannot love God if you are under the continual secret suspicion that he is really your enemy. Read that again. You cannot love God if you are under the continual secret suspicion that he is really your enemy. You simply cannot love God unless you know and understand how much he loves you. In the gospel, you can come to know that God truly loves you through Christ. When you have this assurance, you can even love your enemies because you know that you are reconciled to God. You know that God's love will make people's hatred of you work together for your good. Anybody ever walking around thinking, I'm a big disappointment to God? That secret suspicion, he's just not happy with you? You can't love him. I think it was... Spurgeon that said, you know, once I realized that God loved me so much no matter what, he said, it was then that I beat my chest and said, I can't believe that I would ever disobey him. It wasn't the law, Spurgeon said, that would change his life. It was God's love. He said, when I realized that God loves me, then I beat my chest and said, how can I disobey him? John Owen said this, Nothing is more grievous to the Lord, nor subservient to the design of Satan, than for believers to think hard thoughts of God. What he means is that nothing grieves God the Father more than when we think bad thoughts about him that aren't in line with the gospel. When we think that God doesn't love us, it grieves his heart. Because the evidence of his love is sending his son Jesus Christ. And Owen says, nothing plays more into Satan's hand than we think that God does not love us. When we think these hard thoughts of God. He goes on and says, some are afraid to have good thoughts of God. They think it a boldness to eye God as good, gracious, tender, kind, and loving. Some people are afraid to think God is so good and loving. It's too bold of a thing for me to think this way, to think that God would rejoice over me with singing as Zephaniah 3 says. Some people think, there's no way I could think that. He says, and they think herein that they do well. We think we do well when we say, oh, God doesn't love me. I'm so terrible. He could never love me. We think we do well. And Owen's saying, no, it grieves God's heart. And it plays right into Satan's hand. He says, it is exceedingly grievous to the Spirit of God to be so slandered in the hearts of those whom he dearly loves. It grieves the Spirit of God when we think that he doesn't love us. Sink your life up with the gospel when you really believe that God loves you. You sink your life up with the gospel when you really believe that you can't do anything to earn or lose his love. You can't do anything, Christian, to earn God's love, and you can't do anything to lose his love. So rest, just rest. Spend your energies enjoying God and loving him. You don't have to get on the performance treadmill and try to earn his love. He's not going to love you more if you read your Bible. He's not going to love you more if you pray. He loves you already, and you can rest. And then when you understand that he loves you, then you want to read your Bible, and then you want to pray. Accept his forgiveness and love. On your worst day, God's grace accepts you. Amen. On your worst day, God's grace accepts you. On the day where you yell at your kids or you're stressed over the person you're dating or you're frustrated with your spouse or your job and you just have one of those days where you're just kind of embarrassed of your behavior. Anybody have those? Yeah. On those days, God's grace accepts you. 
because of Jesus. And on your best days, the days where you get up and you read the Bible in the morning and you pray and you go to work like, man, I'm so good. On those days, your best days, it's still about Jesus' performance for you and not your performance for him that gives you access to God. You sync your life up with the gospel. When you preach the gospel to yourself and to others, that it's about Jesus and his work and not your work for him. You can't do anything to earn God's favor. You can't do anything to lose God's favor, Christian. Jesus secured that for you in the gospel. Do you believe it? And if you don't believe it, then you need to preach it to yourself. Paul says this in Galatians 2.20, And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's the gospel. Live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself on the cross for me. Paul personalizes the gospel here. Let me ask you, have you personalized the gospel? Can you say right now, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. He loved me. He loved me and he gave himself for me. Can you personalize that this morning and believe it? That's what Paul does here. God loved you and he gave himself for you. Do you believe it? If you don't believe it, you need to preach the gospel to yourself and trust and live by faith in that. That's what Paul's doing here. The Judaizers were telling the Philippians that they could do something to earn and keep God's favor. And some of the Philippians were believing it. Why? Why would the Philippians, why would any Christian believe this? Because we're doers by nature. We want to do things. We want to do things to earn people's acceptance and their favor and their love. To us, grace seems too easy. Just believe Just repent of my sins and trust in Christ. That's it? Yes, that's it. And then rest. Rest in the gospel. You don't have to do anything. You rest in all that God the Father is for you in Jesus by the power of the Spirit. Faith in the gospel then helps you live out of the gospel. Salvation is from God. It's not by your works. It's by Jesus' works. So you can say salvation is by works, not your works. Salvation is by Jesus' works, by what he has done, his perfect life, his sinless life. Paul says salvation is from God. Look at verse 28 to 29. He says, And not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. It was a sign of the Judaizers' destruction when the Philippians were striving side by side for faith in the gospel message. It was a sign of their destruction because they promoted doing something to earn God's favor. It was proof that they did not believe the gospel. It was a sign that they were still under the wrath of God because they had not repented and trusted in Christ. But it was a sign of the Philippians' salvation. When the Philippians were believing in the gospel, it was proof that the Philippians were in sync with the gospel. And it was all due to God's grace. That's what Paul says here. The phrase here, for it has been granted, is graced in Hebrew. Paul is saying, you've been graced with salvation And he says, you've been graced with suffering. 
The phrase here, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, is a present tense. Paul is saying that you should always be believing in the gospel and you will always be suffering for the gospel. He'd say it this way. You have been graced with faith with faith, to keep believing in the gospel and to keep suffering for the gospel. God has graced you to sync your life up with the gospel, to keep believing it, and to keep enduring suffering for the gospel. Grace to keep believing in the gospel message and grace to keep suffering for it. It's all God's grace. It comes from him, and because it comes from him, who gets the glory? He does. And that's why Paul says two times here, for the sake of Christ, for his sake. When you continue believing in the gospel, he gets glory. And when you continue enduring suffering for the gospel, he gets glory. Paul says, this is what I'm enduring. You've seen the conflict that I had. You've heard about it. I'm still in it. You're engaged in it. Paul says, God has graced us with suffering. And what do you do in the middle of your suffering? You have to preach the gospel to yourself because when your life goes downhill, what do you tend to do? You think God doesn't love me. Why is God doing this to me? He doesn't love me. He loves you enough to grace you with suffering because when you suffer and you endure by his grace, who gets glory? He does. And that's why we need to preach the gospel to ourselves in the middle of our suffering and to say God has a purpose and a plan for this and his glory is going to go on display and it's going to work for my good. We always need to hear it. We need to keep rehearsing all that God is for us in Jesus. We need to keep remembering all that he has done and not all that we haven't done. And when we sync our lives up with the gospel, when we keep believing it, God gets glory because Jesus' life and death and resurrection get highlighted. The focus is on him And that's why we need to keep preaching the gospel to ourselves. It gets our eyes off of ourselves and our performance, and it puts it squarely on Jesus where it's supposed to be. So when you preach the gospel to yourself, you're talking about Jesus and all that he's done for you, and then he gets glory when you do that. That's why we need to keep preaching the gospel to ourselves and to others. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the gospel message that you sent Jesus into this world out of your great love and that you've forgiven us of our sins and you're transforming us now in this life and you're going to usher us into the, the new heavens and the new earth to have resurrected bodies, to be with you forever in an eternity of joy, ever-increasing joy. Thank you for that message of the gospel, Father. May we preach it to ourselves every single day and to one another so that we highlight the work of your son and what he has secured for us in redemption. And then you get glory when we do that. And that's what we want, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Our hope is that today's message empowers you by God's grace to live God's way. For more information, visit us online at gracebath.net.